0: Of course, healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. As we approach 2021, maybe women are leading the way. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shot.
2: What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government.
0: An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. Perhaps it began in ancient Greece when the story goes Lysistrata convinced the women of Greece to withhold sexual privileges from their husbands as a means of forcing the men to negotiate a peace to end the Peloponnesian War the unique power of women banding together. It's important. The first attempt at revolution in Russia was in 1905 when unexpectedly and spontaneously in the capital, St. Petersburg, women staged a strike to protest food shortages, poor living conditions. Their children were literally starving while the Tsars lived fabulously. This strike for bread and peace helped give rise to the successful Russian Revolution of 1917, and more recently in Portland, Oregon, during the Black Lives Matter protests when secret federal police invaded and terrorized participants, a wall of moms was formed to stop the violent attacks and to blow away their tear gas with leaf blowers. The point is, women lead. When they get together, they often make it happen. For many frustrating decades, Americans have pushed... For universal health coverage. We got something, the Affordable Care Act, but one, that's a far cry from real universal coverage, and two, Trump and his new breed of Republicans are determined to wipe even that off the books. But as our guest today, Rosemary Day, points out, as of 2019, approximately 28 million Americans were uninsured. That's 12 percent of the population under age 65. Those of us lucky enough to be over 65 love our Medicare, universal health coverage. Millions of Americans still are underinsured, at risk of losing their coverage or worrying that what little coverage they have won't be enough. And that number continues to grow. Women, Day reminds us, are disproportionately affected by America's broken health care system. They're often left uninsured, underinsured, or reliant on on others for coverage due to issues related to employment, pay inequality, domestic responsibilities, and poor coverage for women's medical needs. This struggle for universal health coverage has gone on since the time of Harry Truman. Could it be that, once again, as has happened so many times in history, real change finally comes when angry, united, and loud women take the lead? In her new book, Marching Towards Coverage, how women can lead the fight for universal health care. Our guest, Rosemary Day, says it's about transforming our health care coverage system with feminism as the lens and women as the drivers, end of quote. Day writes, during this pandemic, we have a unique opportunity to re-examine the systems and social policies we have in place, end of quote. Like nearly all Americans, I do not appreciate private for profit health insurance acting as death panels, making obscene amounts of money while the health and wealth of Americans declines. If women can lead the way and actually make it happen, sign me up as a cheerleader. Rosemary Day, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy <laughs> Alive. Rosemary Day Thank is the so Well Rosemary Day is the founder and CEO of Day Health Strategies, which helps to implement national health care reform. She's been working in healthcare and related fields for more than 25 years, including as the founding deputy director and chief operating officer of the Health Connector in Massachusetts, where she helped launch the award-winning organization that established the first state-run health insurance exchange in the state. She also served as uh, chief operating officer for the Massachusetts Medicaid program. Well, again, thanks for being with us. It seems to me that the genesis of this book began with the fall your mother took in 2017. Please tell us about Mm. how you came to write this book.
2: So um, really, the genesis was the election of Donald Trump and the Republican sweep of leadership in Washington, D.C., with the vow to repeal the Affordable Care Act, as you may recall, Donald Trump said that was something he was going to do on day one. Um, And it seemed like he had enough um, other folks in place that if I were a betting person, I would say the ACA was a goner. And so I, uh, at that point was, incredibly upset um, because I knew that the ACA was based on things we had done in Massachusetts in a very bipartisan fashion that brought together business community and advocates, really folks from across the spectrum in a very workable model. And that for some reason, the ACA had become toxic politically. Well, I have my theories on why, but um, so I felt like uh, it just needs to be, you know, maybe I'm a little Pollyanna, but it's like, we need to explain this better because this actually is very much a solution that can work for America. Maybe it wasn't implemented as well as it could have been, but but we, we can do better and we certainly shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act. So I started thinking, what more can I do, right? And then a bunch of other things happened. The Women's March,
1: incredibly
2: mm-hmm. powerful, oh, peaceful protest and yeah. such huge magnitude. And so many people participated who had not, Ever seen themselves as activists. That was a very remarkable thing. Oh, was great. So thinking about, right, so how do you harness that power? That was a very positive thing. So, and then as soon as the day was over, people say, well, what's next? What are we going to do? So that's kind of percolating for me. Then we had in my, my life, a series of personal health events, myself, my mother, my daughter, it was just 2017 seemed like a pretty awful year. Of course, pales in comparison to 2020 in many respects. Um, you know, at the time that was, that was where we were. And I thought I've got to do more. If I get through my own health event here and come to the other side, then I've got to incorporate this story into something bigger to try to protect the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so the way I saw doing that was to, you know, step up and write a book.
0: Excellent, how is your mother now she's still around what well, she took this big fall right
2: My, she had a fall she recovered from her fall um but she uh then was diagnosed uh, that was with the early stages of uh of dementia and so <sighs> oh, that has um that has been progressing yeah. and yes she is still she is still with us um but as folks know who've been through this it's a it's a hard road.
0: I was through that with my mother. Very, very hard. Yes, indeed. Well, back a few years ago, before COVID, I was traveling in Spain. Ah, The days when we could travel. I had to see a doctor. When I took out my credit card to pay, the staff looked at me, clearly confused. Of course I didn't need to pay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the U.S. is, in fact, the only industrialized nation without universal health insurance. I've, I've often wondered why America's healthcare system relies on employer-provided plans. Is it true that in, early in the 20th century, employer-based insurance pools were initiated by unions? I mean, how, how is it that we have them?
2: Okay. Well, first, um, your anecdote about Spain reminds me of a fabulous uh, section of Michael Moore's, uh, movie Sicko that came out um, quite some time ago where he was going around different uh, countries and seeing like, how do they do healthcare, you know, with his sort of handheld camera thing. And there he was in England and he goes up to, um, he goes up to find the place that he can pay, you know, that, that says cashier right, or right. something. <laughs> and, and he gets there and it turns out that's to pay for the parking. And uh. Everyone is looking at him like, Excuse me, you don't have to pay here. You you can put your credit card away. <laughs> just hilarious. Okay. Um, but but in all seriousness, yeah. um how we America didn't exactly design its coverage system. And I talk huh. in the book about this patchwork quilt, and I call it even a crazy quilt because so much of how it came together just doesn't seem to make sense. And it was almost by happenstance rather than some intentional, you know, design. So this employer this employer-sponsored insurance piece really grew out of um, what was happening in World War II with the wage and price controls um, that were imposed by the government, and so they were trying um, to, uh, you know, kind of keep a, a level playing field amongst businesses um, and not have things get out of control. But they did allow businesses to have some supplemental benefits. Um, so while they were suppressing wages. Uh, businesses could offer health insurance, for example, and so they started to do that as a way to attract um, good employees um, during wartime shortages. So that started to, you know, um, become embedded um, in our in our employer system. And then the tax code was changed also um, to basically make those benefits um, tax exempt, um, and that was. Uh, I think that happened in around 1954. Um, And so that was basically um, a very uh, huge boost toward um, supporting forms of employer-sponsored insurance. And the unions did play a role. And in fact, even historically in other countries, that notion of banding together and creating like a sickness fund um, has a a very long history, Um, you know, way before Uh, The 1900s even. Um, And and that was kind of growing along in Europe. So there was definitely some union movement. um, And that was to create, you know, kind of health and welfare benefit funds for union members as well, which, of course, were then somewhat tied to employment. So a number of different
0: strands Ah, came together. ah. So the unions sort of used it to make membership more attractive to them. Interesting. I did not know that. Well, there's there's another sur- yes, it,
2: which Go is ahead. a which is an interesting contrast, I think, to what happened in some of the European countries where the union um, movement started to look for things more around kind of solidarity across um, you know all classes of employees and not just limiting it to their own sickness funds. And so there started to be more of a push for um, like a universal healthcare solution that the that the government. Um, would have some role in as opposed to having it just carved out industry by industry. So that yeah. and that's that's just different from what happened here.
0: Oddly enough, I mean, it's a crazy quilt, but that where you just explained makes some degree of sense. That's good to know. <laughs> There's another surprising fact. Only about nine percent of Americans had health insurance as of 1940. What, what, what mm. were the, the vast majority? How are they paying for medical care? I'm sure it was a lot cheaper, but. Well, people had to,
2: you know, either had to forego care or they might, you know, they might barter. They might have a midwife,
1: you know, uh, especially
2: people in rural areas, right, Uh would have a midwife um, deliver their babies. This is um, true uh, definitely for African-Americans in the South. Uh, There wasn't much in the way of hospital care that people could afford, but there were hospitals set up with charity care.
1: Uh Um,
2: So, you know, there was. Some of that, but there also just wasn't as much medical care, if you will, (laughs) as there is today. Because Uh. some of the procedures, um, whether they're um, you know operations or whether that's a drug treatment protocol, all of that, a lot of that hadn't been fully invented yet, and we didn't have the expectation of those kinds of you know life uh, preserving um, solutions, and so. So as we have um, innovated and come up with um, amazing amounts of, of life-saving devices, yes. um, our expectations as a society have raised about what it means to have your health and what should contribute to that. And so we've um, developed a fairly expensive medical system. But back in the 40s, it was
0: different. Interesting. Huh. And I'm sh- it sounds like the Trump people would, would like to get back to that. If you can't afford it, dah, too bad. You know, we don't need you. If you just tuned in, <laughs> Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, uh, we're talking uh, with author Rosemary Day about her new book, Marching Toward Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Health Care. Uh, and I wonder, how is this unique moment making it more obvious than ever that the current for-profit-based system is a failure hurting millions, and that we really need universal coverage. How is the pandemic affecting the situation and the mindset? You know, there's 330 million Americans, and I don't know, somehow there hasn't been the political pressure yet, uh, the, uh, the uh, level that it needs to, to start to make it happen. So how is this pandemic affecting? Do you think the demand for it and the pressure for it
2: well, it, you know, it's interesting um, uh, the, the pandemic is so devastating and so insidious. And you know, some of what I call for in the book is, is, you know, picturing these like women's movement, like the march was, that that has a component of showing up in person, whether that's showing up at town hall meetings or, you uh-huh. know, flooding the state capitals or, or the national capital. But uh, whatever that is, um, we... Uh, we aren't seeing as much of that now. Certainly um, there have been a lot of marches around Black Lives Matter, but there's yes. still this concern about for people about showing up. Um, are people going to have masks? All that stuff, which in some ways, sadly, I think is suppressing some of the kind of activism we might be seeing around this. It's, it's a kind of a, a very sad irony uh-huh. to this. Um, but, but absolutely the pandemic to me underscores, you know, um, the need for universal health care, the reason I wrote this book is only needed like an order of magnitude more at this point because of the pandemic, because we're seeing, to go back to your question originally about employer-sponsored coverage, here we are seeing, you know, millions of people losing their right. jobs, right. Um, you know, with close to 50 million people have lost their jobs. And and with that, a number of people have lost their employer-sponsored insurance, which is not probably going to come back. They may be able to find um, a replacement through um, an Affordable Care Act exchange or even through Medicaid, but Mm. there's projections that we're going to see a huge rise in the number of uninsured, you know, anywhere between five and 10 million people. Um, And so we are absolutely moving in the wrong direction. And I really believe that uh, those jobs that have been lost when they, you know, hopefully they come back, but it's going to be a while. And they are unlikely to have benefits because we were, already, health benefits anyway, we were already seeing a trend line where Uh fewer employers were offering those. And so we just can't rely on that to be our solution. Um, It's absolutely devastating when people lose their jobs and their health insurance at the same time. They don't do it that way in other developed countries. And we just make it so much worse for people. And in pandemic only makes it worse.
0: Amazing. There's so many (laughs) aspects of it. And, you know, there's... (laughs) it's just it's it's pretty awful but is it gathering people together are they demanding real change i don't know <laughs> i don't know there you know it's interesting to me you know there's, on, on friday evenings there's bell ringing and there're lawn signs all over the place mm. thanking frontline healthcare workers we ring church bells at set times and make noise tell us please about how these courageous public servants are making out with their own health insurance you, you know thanking them you know is nice but what about paying for their own health insurance what do we know about them
2: um so we know that uh folks who are working in in the public sector and you know um state or federal agencies local government um they, they have actually some of the better health insurance plans still to this right. day That's good. um you know it the uh the workers have been asked to contribute more out of mm-hmm. pocket than, than they were, you know, years ago. Um, but that's a trend that, that all employers are um, have implemented. So, but they're still fairly well protected in general, though because um, certainly state and local governments have to balance their budgets. Yes. Um, they're going to face incredible pressure um, to cut back in in ways that that could end up um, affecting. Uh, benefits at some point. So I, I do have concerns. Um, hospital workers, you know, are, are a combination of, um, nonprofit and for-profit entities, and it really varies. Um, but it it has been such a competitive labor market, Uh, certainly for people who have clinical training, um, that they are very typically, you know, have a, a decent benefits package. It's the people who are frontline workers in the healthcare system, who are maybe home health aides, uh, who don't have necessarily salaried positions and certainly not benefits, and even folks working in hospitals who are doing food service or um, picking up, uh, you know, doing doing the waste processing, right. things like that, a lot of times um, those jobs are not as well uh, funded or benefited.
0: Hmm, even though they're absolutely vital. Well, talking about patchwork, yeah. crazy quilt, you write that there's a 260 260- billion-dollar tax subsidy for mm-hmm. people who get employers, employer-sponsored health insurance. Please explain yes. what that's about.
2: So that goes back to that um, decision uh, in when the IRS um, basically started to allow employer contributions for health benefits to be tax-deductible as a business expense. And so what that means is that um, the U.S. government foregoes the um, tax collection, uh, to the tune of $260 billion. That is the value of that, of that, um, tax deduction
1: uh-huh. across
2: the board. And, um, and that is a choice that we have made as a society. Now, I think a lot of people may have absolutely no idea, even on a personal level that that piece that their employer is paying for is tax deductible. And that, you know, that, and seeing that as like a, you know, a part of their compensation per se. Uh. I think that's not that, that, uh, com- that much of common knowledge. Okay. So, so at an individual level, people may not fully understand that. And then certainly at a, like a societal, where are our tax dollars coming from or not coming from and where are they going? Most people don't have a super clear picture of that, but I I feel like you know, as we think about things, um, taking the anti-racism lens, mm-hmm. I'm really saying we have to shine a light on policy choices that we've made that perhaps we can say weren't intended to be racist, mm. but in fact are, or I would add in, or sexist, but in fact are. I look at employer-sponsored insurance and say this one deserves a huge spotlight right now because that's a lot of money that is essentially benefiting uh, white, middle, and upper middle-class folks disproportionately um, because of the nature of those benefits. And the higher you, up you are you know, in the labor market, salary-wise, you're also typically getting a richer benefits package, hmm. and therefore the value of those health benefits and the, you know, the affiliated tax deduction, is greater. And so you can draw a curve, you know, a, a, a very unfortunate one that shows that Black and Brown folks who are in more of the lower wage or part-time jobs are not getting the benefit of that tax subsidy. So when we say, oh, we can't afford universal health care, it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of ways we could choose to afford it. You know, we could. Mm reallocate some resources we absolutely could if we had the uh, the awareness and the will to do it So i'm trying to raise the awareness well it's like any and and create some will (laughs) and create some will to do it
0: yeah really we need that very much and it's like any you know home budget you know you you decide what's your priority what's not apparently our priority is uh uh, tax benefits for the wealthiest and uh, sweetheart deals for the weapons contractors but real national security Eh, not so much. I was going to ask, but you just answered about you know, structural racism being embedded in the employment-based insurance system. You, you explained that pretty well. And Obamacare is certainly, certainly not really universal health care. To me, you know, having the insurance industry at the table it had an effect. Uh, but many of us still demand universal health care. It's something. It's a start, Obamacare, the ACA. Let's say American policymakers, let's say they keep employer-based models. You talk about online insurance marketplaces, health insurance exchanges, and expanded access to subsidized insurance by redeploying the uh, tax subsidy. These are not as easy to explain as simple Medicare Mm -hmm. for all. Please give it a try.
2: The way I, I think we've got to explain things simply is to say, Health healthcare is a right. Yes. And and that, that fits nicely on a sign at any march or any you know sit-in or town hall meeting you want to go to. Yes. Um, it's as easy as writing down Medicare for all. Um, my the, one of the big points in my book is that there are many paths to making healthcare a right. Medicare for all is one of them, but it is not the only path. And my deep concern um, is that Medicare for all is too much um, of a change for this country to digest for many reasons. And a big one being that people who have employer sponsored coverage, um, while they may not love it, they don't want to be told it's going to go away. Um, People would prefer to choose something different than to be told the, you know, feel like the rug is being pulled out from under them. So, uh, and because about half the population is getting their, their benefits through employers, that's a really Uh large number. So, so we have to, you know, pay attention to that practical reality. Um, So there are other paths and, To me, again, I I think you got to be able to boil it down to saying making healthcare a right, and then leave it to the the pragmatic um, politicians and implementer types to figure out that path. In Massachusetts, the which was the prototype for the Affordable Care Act, we actually got down to um, about two percent uninsured. So ninety-eight percent of our population was insured, and we called that near universal coverage. Uh-huh. It was pretty close. Yeah. And that was using, that was using the framework, which included private insurers. It included, I'll I'll note that many of them are nonprofits mm-hmm. um, included, you know, a health insurance exchange included a robust um, package of subsidies, which in fact are more generous than what the, the federal government has been able to offer. And it also included the health insurance mandate. So, those pieces um, really are, you know, embedded in the Affordable Care Act, and we were able in our state to get pretty close with that framework. So I, mm-hmm. I make that point in the book, and I show, uh, you know, what some other countries have done, short of having complete, you know, government control of healthcare, which, honestly, culturally, I think is not going to be sellable in in our country. I just want to come back to the healthcare is a right, though, because I think that is sellable. Um, and, and the one of the examples I always like to, to give is just that K through twelve education is a right in our country for all of our children. And we don't question that anymore. Like and we you know we have uh-huh. inequities in that system well, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But there is a baseline belief and buy in culturally that every child should be going to school. And that's what I think we should be looking at for healthcare.
0: Interesting point, because it certainly didn't used to be the case that there was K through 12 for everybody. It's only a relatively recent uh, phenomenon in the United States. Uh, Interesting that uh, comparing that and and what we expect and what we demand, yeah, it's it's not what it used to be. But uh, I, I wonder about, you know, Massachusetts is a heck of a lot bigger in terms of population than Vermont. And a few years ago, Vermont which is a very progressive state, you know, progressive legislature, Mm. they tried their own universal health care. It didn't happen. My guess is that the universe, the the marketing universe was not large enough to buy services in bulk. There's only about 600,000 people in Vermont. Is it a good idea to still push for universal health care at the state level or should it be regional or dare I say single payer for the whole country?
2: Oh, wow. Okay, you've got a bunch of questions in there. Well, it's it's really interesting. Um, I, I applaud Vermont uh, for what they attempted to do, yes. and you know, and I'll also note that that is Bernie Sanders' home state, um, and it is just across the border from Canada. You know, where mm-hmm. where there is um, sure. you know universal health care um, of one form. So so it seemed like you know the the not that they had all their ducks in a row, but certainly that a lot of key things were aligned to make it um, p- more feasible to potentially happen there than in other states, mm-hmm. you know, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, you know, having a smaller population makes it easier yeah, uh, because you you can, in, in terms of um, forging new public policy, because you can build trust and have community conversations and, um, you know, not necessarily have Uh, big corporate interests run away with everything. You can kind of, you know, keep things a little more at a grassroots level. So there's a small is beautiful in in many regards. Um, I think the main problem uh, for, and and why it didn't end up happening was the price tag because so much of what is not quote unquote on budget right now, and that would be all the folks who are covered with employer sponsored insurance um, comes on budget as a government expense as soon as you say, we're get, getting rid of employer-sponsored and we're going to have this government program. And that government expense has to be funded somehow, and that will be with some form of tax dollars. So you end up having to make a case for a very large tax increase, and there's really ends up being no good way to hide that. Um, you know, can say, well, we'll put this into the payroll taxes. That'll be the same as what your deduction was for your health plan, um, that your employer was taking, but now it's going to go to the government. As soon as you start saying that, mm. there just are a lot of people who have not only sticker shock, but I think lack of choice shock because, you know, again, as I said earlier, you may not love your employer-sponsored insurance, but you do feel like on some level you're getting to choose that as contrasted with being told the government's now going to be in charge of your health care. That really, um, really worries a lot of people. Yes. I think regardless regardless, even of, of party politics, that there's just a kind of fundamental thing there that is yeah. hard to absorb.
0: That's true. And uh, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, Rosemary Day about her new book, Marching Toward Coverage. Marching Toward Coverage. Yes, how women can lead the fight <laughs> for universal health care. And uh many countries after World War Two established the foundation of the universal healthcare system right after World War Two. They were in worse shape than we were. What what mm. circumstances allowed them to make that commitment? Well we didn't.
2: Well, um, you know, it it always does vary by country, but certainly um when you look at the case of England, um, there was profound devastation um from World War Two and oh, yes. from the the blitz, the bombing. So, so there was, um, a, a hospital system that really genuine, like literally had to be rebuilt. And so there was, um, an opportunity to, um, if not outright start from scratch, certainly, um, start fresh with, with a new, with a new way of doing things. And so, um, that's something that was noted in, uh, T. R. Reid's great book, *The Healing of America*, um, mm. that uh, that explains like how many of these different countries came, uh, how universal healthcare came to pass, and and so England had this you know kind of uh, unique situation that they were able to, I guess, capitalize on because there had been folks who've been wanting universal healthcare waiting uh-huh. in the wings, and and then that became um, to use policy terms like the window of opportunity, if you will, mm-hmm. which of course was from devastation, but frankly, that's, um, and I'll come back to the pandemic later, but you know, when there is devastation, I mean, that's, that's it, tragic. There's also then a lot of times an opportunity to do something bigger, bolder, different. So that was, um, a, a really interesting story in England's case In other countries case, like, um, like the case of Germany, they had started with um, the sickness funds, and then Otto van Bismarck, um, had, uh, really made a commitment to um, having some sort of universal healthcare, though they didn't get all the way to truly universal until, I don't know, sometime um, in the last, late last century. So what was interesting for me in, in researching this book was seeing that countries might make a commitment to it but still take some incremental steps to get there. To, you know, so they'd say healthcare is a right, and then they'd have to kind of follow through, Um but they may not cover every single thing. Um, and, and that's been true in, in really all the countries. And I quote one of the British health ministers in my book says, "We cover every one, but we don't cover everything." Um, so some things people still have to find a way to pay for out of pocket. But there's an agreement that there's a basic social safety net that everyone has some form of health coverage.
0: Well, you would think there could be, but it really is is complicated. And people, I think, especially in America, or at least I see it, we like things simple. And, you know, there's the, a lot of people on the left who say, well, if it's not Medicare for all, then forget about it. It's no good. And I think you're suggesting that, uh, you know, the ACA isn't terrible. As you say, in Massachusetts, which was the precursor to the Obamacare, 98% of the people are covered. That's Pretty darn good. So, what is good about the ACA? What are its weaknesses? Can it be built on? Which is, I think, what Joe Biden is saying. I know he he doesn't support Medicare for all. I think that does scare some people. You're right for many different reasons. But but what? How is it something basic that is is good enough to work with? And what needs to be done? Yeah.
2: So um, so yes, I think that uh, Joe Biden's um, Instinct here to build on the Affordable Care Act, and, and remember, he's the one who said to Obama, "This is a big effing deal." Yes, true. when this <laughs> thing got passed, that's right. I right? That. Yes. He was, he was, yeah, right. he was. He was right there yes. through thick and thin, getting it through the legis- you know, through Congress. Um, and so he knows what it takes. I mean, he obviously, having been a senator for decades and stuff, he knows um, how hard it is to move major pieces of legislation through. Um, and so he. Uh, he is saying healthcare should be a right, you know, unequivocally. In fact, all the Democratic candidates said that. They just had the different paths, and so he's saying, let's build on what we have, and and really that is to make it more Massachusetts style, which mm-hmm. includes making the subsidies more generous, um, and you know, going back to um, more outreach and restoring um, the mandate as well. You know, it's carrots and sticks, all of that. Yes. Um, and also calling for a public option. So. You asked earlier, can states do it on their own? And um, the only way states can do that is if there's some significant help from the federal government. Um, Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, it it really does take the scale of of federal resources to make something like this happen and working through, I think, the federal tax code. Um, And you see that, too, with like, you know, there's still some unrealized potential of the ACA, which is, you know, a tragedy at this point that that there are 12 states that have not expanded the Medicaid program. Mm-hmm. And so um, so there are still people who, within existing law, could have health care coverage, yeah.
1: um, and,
2: and and they don't. And that's mostly in the South. Um, the southern states have not expanded Medicaid. And that is something that absolutely could be achieved, you know, without even changing the Affordable Care Act, but it would take will at the state level. And we're seeing some of that, you know, Missouri and and Oklahoma both had ballot initiatives that passed this summer to, to expand the Medicaid program. So little by little, we're getting there. But when we leave things to states, we end up leaving a lot of people out. And and I just think in a pandemic, I said it's a tragedy. On the days I'm really mad, I say it's absolutely outrageous that we that we could do that.
0: I couldn't agree more. And you talk about the southern states. Uh I, I'm not. I'm not sure if this is true. I've heard this is true that in 1948, 75 percent, according to a Gallup poll, supported national health care to go along with uh, uh, the New Deal programs that Roosevelt had had. But talk about getting things through the legislature, the Southern senators who were deeply racist and you know totalist segregationists, because they feared that government-run hospitals would potentially mix. The blood of black people and white people—they killed it. I thought that was an interesting mm. story. And the South—they are all right. They are different. I know I have some Southern listeners here, but sorry about that. You got to make some change there. And you know, you, t- you talk about—well, I would—I
2: well, would, I would also say I think the American Medical Association for decades had a pretty strong stance, and this was so not to blame it all the South, but just. Nationally, that that doctors, physicians were very fearful of government control of True. healthcare and and what whether that would mean how they run their practices, their reimbursement rates, the decisions they make. There's been this you know long-standing, deep-seated fear that was then espoused by policy coming from the AMA. That has really started to change, and I see that as a hopeful sign.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I certainly the AMA. Uh, has been pretty conservative over the years. My sense is that doctors and other medical professions now almost universally favor a standard universal health care. Why and why did it take them so long to get there, do you think?
2: <laughs> well, you know, the nature of um, of practicing medicine has changed um, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, if you were a Uh, you know, a pediatrician or a general practitioner, you know, in setting up your own independent practices that has really uh, started to go the way of the goonie Bird. I mean, because of, you know, even industry and technology changes um, there have just been way more uh, consolidation of, of healthcare practices and it's really hard to exist as a mom and pop shop. So, so all that kind of independent entrepreneur aspect for physicians um, is it, is just really become increasingly rare so that so that dynamic has shifted, and many physicians are actually employed you know by um, by a, a larger hospital sure oh yeah yeah you know, so that has shifted, and many of them, even if they are running their own things, feel like they are uh, subject to insurance company policies oh, like yeah. that they're being dictated to, and their lives are being run by insurer reimbursement practices. Um, and not really like that they have their own ability to chart their, their destiny. So all of that kind of change in the industry has left doctors feeling, you know, very frustrated, very burnt out. That's, it's a huge problem, actually, for doctors. But I think it also, in a way, has opened the possibility for, okay, well, this is already bad. Maybe government. Having some role isn't so bad. And by the way, it's very stressful for me to not be able to treat people if they don't have coverage, like, Uh, you know, and we're seeing that if you look at the younger doctors coming up through training and and where they're polling, they, uh, the, the majority, vast majority think healthcare should be a right. Um, and don't have as much of a problem with a government role in it. And also, the mm-hmm. um, the profession has become more female, and they too ah. um, share similar views. So, the it has shifted in terms of the demo, demographics of who our doctors are and the economics. So many things.
0: Boy, absolutely. And I I, I have friends who are doctors, and uh, yeah, they're they're really frustrated that they can't. That their de- medical decisions are being made by, uh, you know, people looking at the bottom line in some, you know, office somewhere in some tall building there, and they're not medically based decisions, they're cost based decisions. And that, that's just wrong, in my opinion. Uh, and, you know, well, conservatives, I believe, used to support expanding healthcare coverage until only very recently. And what ground did they support it? And why did their position shift?
2: Um, well, <laughs> I'm not sure that, that it's shifted for all conservatives, right, but certainly if we're looking at the leadership in DC right now, or, or so-called yeah. <laughs> yeah. leadership, um, uh-huh. you know, that, that, that there's, you know, what people are calling Trumpism mm-hmm. and I don't even exactly know what that is because, um, it can mean one thing one day and one thing another, <laughs> but it does not mean, it does not mean supporting universal health care, right? No. And I, and and frankly, you know what's ironic is that the model for the Affordable Care Act, which I mentioned, was Massachusetts was yeah. actually based on a model that came out um, from the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative yeah. think tank. Huh. So, so the fact that that was then embraced by um, Democrats, moderate Democrats, and even some you know very liberal ones in Massachusetts, anyway because they saw that as a viable path and, and previous attempts had failed at universal healthcare. Um, you know, it, it became, um, it became, I guess, possible, right. To, to do this. Um, you know, but it's just, <laughs> I don't know. it's, uh, it's like, because it got embraced, I guess, by some folks on the left, then folks who are further to the right Duh. had to reject it. Duh. And, of course. And, oh my. And, yeah, and and yet because and it didn't leave them then much room to go anywhere because the left had already taken some of their ideas. You know, the marketplace, exchange, all of that stuff in mean, exchange, that's like the stock exchange. That's a very, you know, um more businessy kind of term, right? So yeah. it didn't leave a lot of room to go when you say you're going to replace the ACA. That like where where were the new ideas going to be? Um, hard to come by. And I I hate to say it, but honestly, I do believe that the moniker of Obamacare. Um, while some people might say, "Wow, that's great, I love it," mm. um, <laughs> you know, and, and others will yes. say, "Oh my God, I don't like Obamacare" because right. they hate. Obama. Yes. And and Jimmy Kimmel, you know, oh, yes. years ago had a very funny piece, you probably remember when oh. he was interviewing people about whether they liked the Affordable Care Act or whether they liked Obamacare. Yeah. And they I'm would wax him. on about they love the ACA and they hate Obamacare. And then he would say, but actually, they're the same thing. <laughs> and so,
0: well, this whole Trumpism know, thing is uh, it's, it's like, as somebody said, like there was a, a cover over the sewer for many, many years. And Trump lifted the sewer off. And this, it, it, it's obvious racism. I mean, just, there's no question in my mind. Ah, so much to do. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking about uh, a new book, Marching Towards Health Coverage. How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Healthcare*. Our guest is its author, Rosemary Day. Women have been central. To the march toward universal coverage from the New York socialites who in 1913 started what was to become the American Cancer Society, Francis Perkins, FDR's Secretary of Labor, uh, black lay people, especially midwives who played a key role in illuminating the social determinants of health. Fill in a bit of that interesting history, Please
2: in writing this book, I really wanted to encourage women to think about um, the fact that you can lead from where you are and that Mm -hmm. you can't, it becomes like a circular thing. Well, well, we don't have the power. Well, you know, nobody's going to just hand us the power. You have to, you have to um, be willing to go for it. And even if you can't exert power through formal channels yet, um, there are plenty of other paths you can take. And so I turned to history to provide some illustrations of how women who've had even greater odds than than we do today, sitting here in 2020, you know, as bad as some days we may feel, um, you look back, you know, at what women were doing even before they had the right to vote. And mm. let's, let's uh, give a shout out to the hundredth anniversary of Amen. of women's suffrage. Yes. Um, you know, you look back at what the women were struggling up against both politically, economically, all the things that were stacked against them, and yet they still would find ways to lead. Um, I found that to be extremely inspiring. Um, and so it, it helps me if I feel like, oh, no, I want to stay on the couch. Like, no, look at what these women did. Like, almost like you owe it to your, your ancestors mm. to to get up and keep going, right? Um, I mean, what I don't think the alternative is good. And we've certainly seen... Um, <laughs> we've certainly seen one version of the alternative in the past four years. Yeah.
0: And it ain't good. <laughs> it is not yeah. good. Well, talk about history, and I do love history. There's that 1971 book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. Mm-hmm. Very significant. What was that book a response to, and what shifts did it kick off? How important was that to this whole thing?
2: Uh, you know, that was a place where women. Uh, So, um, and I remember being given a copy of this book, uh, right when I was, uh, getting out of college and was, uh, newly engaged (laughs) to, uh, to my still husband. Um, and boy, it was even then, which I don't think was so long ago, but I guess Uh. I would say it was (laughs) decades ago. It was still kind of a radical that was back in like 1988. It was still kind of radical. So. Yeah, it had only just come out, you know, in the previous decade. Yes. And um, it was it was a movement where women had come together and were talking like in a workshop session about how they were being treated in the healthcare system. So this is women who already had access, but they felt that their male doctors weren't listening to them. And at that time, the vast majority of physicians were still men. And so they were focusing on a lot of the OBGYN types of issues, um, the childbirth uh, requirements. I think, you know, um, not necessarily getting to choose their path for childbirth, all of these things. And they came together. We're talking like realized they had to do something about it that they had to start to make a change. And so they wanted to raise awareness and educate women that there were other paths. You could have a midwife. So if you're a white woman, um, you were sort of, and you had means, you were just funneled straight to the hospital, drug you up, and basically deliver your baby in a, in a way that was convenient to the doctor, not necessarily to you. And you if you didn't know there was another way, um, then, then how could you choose it? So the idea was to educate women um, a lot more about about their options and to start to um, build, you know, a groundswell of pressure to the system so that you could have more options and, um, and to change, you know, to change the makeup of who the doctors are. And I would say that was phenomenally successful, um, you know, in terms of what even by the time I was having my first, uh, two kids, the choices I had, I thank the women in the Boston Women's Health Collective who, who paved that way, um, so that we didn't have to uh, just follow what used to be just convenient for the doctors. We were given choices. So, um, yeah. so that that was a very much like the personal becoming political, uh-huh. here, uh, where. You know, changing the way that healthcare is being practiced, and then also raising awareness um, about whether birth control is being covered, or you know, things like that that um, weren't necessarily talked about in polite circles. You know, <laughs> and and now you look at the Affordable Care Act. Thank you um, to the the women like Nancy Pelosi who insisted that a number of these um, women's preventive health coverage be included explicitly at no cost so that women can get birth control or mammograms or things like that at no cost. I, I think you can trace that back to like the work of the Boston Women's Health Collective.
0: Yeah, there are a few moments in history. History changes very slowly unfortunately, but there's a few key moments. And you're reminding me of the book, not the movie, but the movie is based on the book 9 to 5, which was uh, from <laughs> Women in Boston, I do believe. And it was about, uh, you know, women's rights in the office place. And uh, just I I was a state senator for a long time, and and we pushed. It was my legislation, which didn't pass, to require insurance companies to pay for uh, in vitro fertilization. Oh, it paid for men's Mm. things, but not for women. So we've come a long Mm. way, but we still have a long way to go. There's no question about that. And women perhaps can, you know take the lead, as well as in working together with the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, movement. I I think, you know, talk about that a little bit more, the interplay between race and health in this country and how, you know, the power of Black Lives Matter perhaps uh, could help move this issue forward as well.
2: Absolutely. And, um, and and then if we have a moment, I'd love to share one of my favorite Nancy Pelosi, you know, persisting quotes. Too, oh, please <laughs> do. Yes. Keeps me inspired. Good. Yes. Well, in, there is so much overlap um, between what Black Lives Matter um Movement is advocating, and what I'm what I put into the book, I have a whole chapter about the social determinants of health, and one that I call out is racism and the tremendous um, degree of health disparities oh. you know in our country that existed prior to covid and now have only been exacerbated but mm. um one of the statistics i i um, that was shared in a talk I went to by a professor from the Harvard School of Public Health is that we have 200 African-Americans, again, before COVID, 200 African-Americans die every day due to health disparities. That's the equivalent of one jetliner crashing every single day. And these are preventable conditions. Um, part of that is because they don't have health insurance coverage at the same rate that whites do. Um, part of it is that they have access to uh, issues and also um, discrimination and how they're treated within the healthcare system. Yes. So there's a whole confluence of factors, but um, but that that number. I mean, you think about how outraged we are if a if a plane crashes, two hundred people die, and we all want to have a huge investigation. What went wrong? Wow. How are we going to prevent that? Hmm. Two hundred people dying every day like that, and somehow. We just let that be okay. I, I call that out because it's not okay. And so looking at health coverage is what I tried to focus my book on, but also opening um, people's eyes to some of the other paths. So your form of activism is to, you know, you, you want to do universal health care and something else. I give you plenty of um, opportunities yeah. through that.
0: <laughs> what was the, I can't let you go without that quote from uh, Nancy Pelosi.
2: She said um, during the fight to pass the Affordable Care Act, she said, we will go through the gate. If the gate is closed, we will go over the fence. If the fence is too high, we will pole vault in. If that doesn't work, we will parachute in. Hmm. But we are going to get health reform passed.
0: (laughs) You know, it's been a mystery to me why she's such a lightning rod. I I think it's because she's a strong woman. (laughs) I can't think of any Uh, other reason. It just doesn't make any sense to me, but some people, like the President of the United States, doesn't like strong women, that's for sure. And that's a big factor here. Let's face it, it is. And as you say, your book was really inspired by the 2017 amazing March, uh, Mm. Women's March, you know, after the inauguration of this idiot up there, uh, amoral. Anyway, so how can... It's been going on a long time. It's been the struggle for universal health care has been going on a long time. We've made a lot of progress. How can women now lead and accomplish what so far and, for, and has been evading a solution? What, what's the role of women here? I know you talked about that a little bit, from lead from where you are. What can women do specifically?
2: Well, I, so I take, um, I take inspiration from, so we talked about history decades ago, but if you look at what happened after the women's March and the huge, like showing in town hall meetings to protect the affordable care act and tell stories about pre existing conditions nah. and what you're, you're going to take away my coverage. Look at what happened to my child or look at what mm. happened, you know, to my husband and women came, came forward In droves, you know, and we're on video, and then things went viral, showing these stories and shaming, um, shaming public officials into having to answer how How are you going to cover these issues for us if you're going to take the ACA away? Um, So that was very, very powerful, and it then it then went right on into the 2018 midterm elections, where more women got elected to Congress than ever before. We're still underrepresented. But we made huge strides that year because a number of women decided enough is enough. I'm going to run for office. And they got support in doing it. And so I say, hey, women, look at this. We have been able to do that. Let's keep on keeping on. Um, We need to give more political donations. We only give a third of the political donations. Men give two thirds. Uh We need to make our voices heard um, through showing up at things, town halls, virtually, Going viral on social media with this message, uh, sending postcards, making a wall of moms, mm-hmm. making donations. There's—I have no end of the paths that you can take, and I—I put a lot of that on my website, RosemarieDay.com, uh-huh. where you can take a quiz and see what is your level of personal activism. Yeah. No judgment, just like start from where you are, and and then get out of your comfort zone. You know, I've been forcing myself to just writing yeah. this book was a huge. Departure from my comfort zone, and and I, I encourage people to do that. You'll you'll benefit. You'll make new friends. You're gonna grow, um, and you're gonna actually reduce some of your own personal burdens if you realize, oh, other people share these these same concerns, and we can come together, and together we're much stronger.
0: And I find once you start that stuff, you want more of it because it's kind of fun. <laughs> it really is. You can get it's- some some things done. It's very
2: fun. It's very fun. And and, and to, and to I, I love good quotes. And one that I saw in sure. so many signs at women's marches was Angela Davis, right? Uh, who is just an icon yeah. um, and, and, a, and a hero of mine. She says, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept.
0: Ah, I love it. Uh, that's great. There's so much... We need optimism these days. And there was, you know, the optimism was there in uh, January 2017. It was there when women stopped the war in ancient Greece. Women tend to make the big changes. Let's face it. You know, men sometimes capitalize on it, but it's the women who really get it going. The book is called Marching Toward Coverage. How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Healthcare. Our guest has been its author, Rosemary Day, and uh, that website, again, is rosemaryday.com? Is that it?
2: rosemaryday.com, yep. Terrific.
0: Fixing universal healthcare was so easy. Thanks so much for being with us <laughs> Keeping Democracy Thank Alive.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
3: Please come and see me face to face. If you got troubles, I'll play for you. Then you won't worry, you'll be smiling too. Make you feel alright.